0: Our sermon text comes from 1 John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1. If you grabbed one of the Bibles as you came in this morning, it can be found on page 1021. 1 John chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness... If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. May God bless the reading of his word.
1: Well, if you're visiting this morning, we've been in a a little three-part Christmas series, and it's been walking through this first chapter and into the second chapter of John's first letter. And we're going to look at the first two verses of chapter two this morning, just two verses. We've already looked at chapter 1 in the previous two messages. Uh, but before we get into 1 John chapter 2, 1 and 2, I wonder if I could ask you a question. What kind of Christmas are you having? What sort of season are you having? Is it a, is it a season marked by what sorts of emotions? What sorts of experiences? Um, in my mind, there's there's four ways we can experience the Christmas season, and you'll I think enjoy this little graphic behind me that illustrates the four ways we could we can take. it. this is not original to me. Okay, I'm not claiming this, um, but it is helpful as far as thinking through um, the different ways we can experience Christmas. The first one in the to- in the bottom left-hand corner. So bottom left, the, the the man with the candle. If you're looking at that picture, you're probably thinking of a Christmas story with Ebenezer Scrooge, and this is the first way that Christmas can be experienced. Before I get to the pictures, hold on a second. Look at the axes, the lines. This is important to the diagram. Okay, so on the horizontal line, on the left-hand side, you have darkness later, which darkness is coming, and then you have light later on the right. And then in the vertical axis, you have light now and darkness now. So each one of these pictures corresponds to those different realities. First of all, Scrooge, this would be darkness later and darkness now. It's a very pessimistic, sad view of the holiday season. It is a bah humbug sort of experience. Scrooge says darkness wins. Get used to it. Fess up to reality. But we know that we're built for joy. And so we can't live there. Second, you've got it right above Scrooge. You've got the shopper. This is... Light now and darkness later. So get it all in while you can. Because life's coming to an end. Death is looming. So let's pursue as much celebration and joy as we can get out of earth. But we know more. We're built for hope. We're built for life beyond the grave. This isn't all there is. So you got the Scrooge, you got the shopper. Number three, you got Santa. So look up at Santa, top right-hand corner. That's light now and light later. This is just joy. It's just all happiness. Everything is happy. Everything's just happy. Forget the darkness. It's all light. But we know that's not true. Plenty in our world reminds us of the darkness that is present. And we we blind our eyes to it and shield our hearts from it to our own cynical um, experience. And then finally, fourth, you have the stable where Jesus was born. And you have light now and darkness, or sorry, darkness now and light later. And I think this is the Christmas experience. Right now, we live in a fallen, broken, sinful, cursed world that has evidence of God's activity and presence. He has not departed from us. The darkness is real. We own the darkness. Sin is a reality, and it has brought unmeasurable, indefinable, catastrophic brokenness into our world. But the light has arrived, and it is growing, and it will grow more and more until the final day. So here we face the truth of the darkness, yet we joyfully hope in the light. And I think that's the vision that John gives us in 1 John chapter 1 and 2. It's a very realistic picture of sin and its effect on the world, but also this note of hope rings out again and again that Christ has come to decisively deal with sin and all its effects so that we can be reinstated to fellowship with God, fellowship with each other, and an eternity of unending, unbreakable joy. So we've already seen that a little bit. If you weren't here or just need a refresher, let me quickly review the past couple of sermons on this text. In week number one, we talked about Christmas being historical. The title of this series was Christmas in Three Words, and we've been mining out what those three words are. And the first one was Christmas is historical from 1 John 1, 1 to 4. And there we saw who Jesus was, that he was the eternal Son of God, that he came and was manifested in the flesh. We can know this and be certain of this because it's not some myth. It's rooted in history. John is testifying here in his first letter to what he saw, to what he touched to what he experienced being Jesus' closest earthly friend during his three years of ministry. And why does all that matter? Because in and through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we are reinstated into fellowship with God and fellowship with each other and a future of complete joy. So that was the first week, Christmas is historical. The second week focused on 1 John 1, 5 through 10, and we talked about the second word, Christmas is essential. That is, Christmas is essential for dealing with our biggest problem. And our biggest problem we talked about was in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. That God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And I said, that's a big problem because we're not light. And we have darkness. So how do we respond to that? If the problem is not with God. God is light. It's a glorious reality. It's a beautiful reality. But when light interacts with darkness, and God cannot have fellowship with darkness, and we have darkness, and our darkness... That does not give us a lot of hope. And we talked about two bad responses to that. One is, I don't need this, whatever God's got to offer to solve this problem, which is to deny our sin. Or, I don't want this. That's another possible option, and we practice hypocrisy by claiming to have fellowship with God, but really walking in darkness, and really that's what we love, even though we would claim to be a Christian. And then we saw the three great truths That we must have, I must have this, which is God sends the light, we believe and we become sons of light, and we walk in the light by confessing our sins and receiving reinstated fellowship with God. I've been reading um, a new devotional by Paul Tripp, he's one of my favorite writers, Paul David Tripp, uh, called Come Let Us Adore Him, a daily devotional for Advent, and I wanted to read something from you on this theme that I read just a couple of days ago. This is Paul Tripp writing about this reality. And he says the following. He says, The Christmas story confronts our delusions that we can live healthy and wholesome, independent lives. If we were capable of being what we were supposed to be and doing what we were designed to do, and if we were able to solve our deepest and most foundational problems, then there would have been no need whatsoever for Jesus to take on human form, to be born as a baby, to live, die, and rise again. The Christmas story confronts us with our dependency. The Christmas story tells us that we need help. The Christmas story tells us that spiritual need and spiritual dependency are universal and inescapable. It makes no sense to celebrate the birth of Jesus when you strive for independence. The birth of Jesus, Tripp says, destroys the logic of human independence. It crushes the belief that our lives belong to us to live as we choose. The Advent narrative doesn't let you hold on to the belief that you can live as you were created to live without any power of wisdom or wisdom but your own. The coming of Jesus levels the playing field. It puts all of us in the same category. doesn't matter if you're man or woman, young or old, whether you were born, where where you were born, how much money or education you have, what race you are, what natural gifts you possess. If you are a human being, the Christmas story confronts you with the depth of your need for help. But the Christmas story doesn't just confront you with your need it also introduces you introduces you to the ultimate helper. The Christmas story is about help coming to earth. He lay in that manger and he will soon hang from a cross all to provide for us the help we desperately need. So that brings us to our text this morning. First John chapter one verse, or first John chapter two verses one and two and the third essential or third word to describe Christmas, and it is Christmas is joyful. Because these two verses contain amazing things that should thrill our hearts and send us into a spirit of joy, and I pray that's what would be the result of our time thinking through these two verses together this morning. So notice how we'll get to those three in just a moment, but I want to set us up by seeing what John says to us at the beginning of Chapter 2, verse 1, notice how he writes. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, why does he say that? Well, he doesn't want us to take the promises that are given to us in the previous verses and turn them into a license to live however we want. You know, this is how a lot of people hear grace. It's how a lot of people hear the gospel. Because the gospel is good news. It's not good advice. It's not about, here are five, ten tips to improve your life and get you right with God. No, it's news that announces of something that has been done for you, of which you contribute nothing to, that you just simply receive with the empty hands of faith. It's a free gift. It's a free offer but we can take that message and abuse it in our sin. And so John tells us, I'm writing this awesome gospel to you, not so that it would encourage you to sin. Why would he say that? Look back at verse 7 of chapter 1. He said, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Great news. Awesome news. The blood of Jesus cleanses from every single sin we have ever committed or ever will commit. Notice verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So our cleansing and our forgiveness is on the account of what another person has done for us. But he doesn't want the cleansing blood of Jesus and the full forgiveness of our sins to move us to think lightly of sin. Because if we remember, our sin caused the Son of God to be crushed under the wrath of God. And if we think that's a light thing, if we think that's not a precious thing, then we don't know our sin, nor the cross as we ought. And really, we don't get the gospel. And the gospel hasn't gotten us. To interact with sin in a lenient way actually puts us in the category of verse 6 of chapter 1. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. Say, I'm, I'm trusting the gospel. It's by grace alone that I'm saved. But I don't care about God. I don't walk with God. I don't set the Lord always before me, living consciously under his lordship in every single decision I make because salvation is free and it's easy and you just have to receive it. I've interacted with people who hear the gospel that way. Share the gospel freely, fully. They're like, okay, that's all? Cool, I'll take it. And that's it. Like it's like getting your ticket punched or something. That's not how you receive the gospel. So John is very aware of that. He doesn't want us interacting with sin in a lenient way, but there's a second error he wants us to avoid as well. That's the error of license, of treating the gospel as though it were a small thing, sin as though it were a small thing. But he also doesn't want us to be discouraged. Notice what he says again, chapter 2, verse 1. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. So at the same time, he's acknowledging another reality, that we as God's people are not perfect to deny we're sinners is a form of deception. Remember that? 1 John chapter 1 verses 8 and 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. So we acknowledge that we're sinners. Not to be perfect to qualify for heaven. While Christians don't and can't live continually in unrepentant sin, that doesn't mean that sin doesn't live in us and we don't struggle with sin, and we don't fight sin. So holding these two statements in tension, brothers and sisters, is very, very important. It's possible to be too lenient or too severe toward our sin. Too great a lenience almost encourages us in sin by stressing God's provision. You know, you just he'll keep on cleansing, you just keep on sinning. But at the same time, an exaggerated severity that either denies the possibility of our sinning or refuses forgiveness and restoration after we've sinned is an equally dangerous error in anti-gospel. Both lenience and severity are condemned by John. So what he's stressing here is the tension that every true Christian experiences. And if you're one of God's people here this morning, you know this. This is in you. You don't want to sin, but you know you do. And sometimes you like sinning. It feels good. But you hate your sin. "Do You want all your sin gone? You'd say, yes, Lord, take it away. Not another stitch of it in my life. I don't want any. And so we have to acknowledge that we can be prone at different times in our lives. Some of us, by disposition and just who we are in personality, we can be prone to one of, these other, one of the other extremes. We can either be too lenient with our sin or we can be too severe. We can be too lenient and think, oh, God will always forgive me, no matter what I do. Or we can be, God will never forgive me because of what I've done. And see, John is causing he's, he's putting a straight course here right through. He's cutting right to the heart of the matter. And he's saying our attitude is that we don't want to sin. We're not going to sin. We're going to fight sin. We're going to strive against it. But we know that as long as we remain in this body, we're going to struggle, and we're going to fight, and we're going to fall, and we're going to fail. And therefore, this is why Christmas is joyful. Because remember, like I said a couple of weeks ago, walking in the the light does not mean that you're a perfect person. Walking in the light, that means when you blow it and you sin, you confess your sins to God. In an ongoing, regular, habit of life, you're seeking to confess and acknowledge your wrongdoing to God and ongoing in an ongoing way receiving, receiving afresh his ongoing, faithful, just forgiveness of all of your sins. Because the blood of Jesus really does cleanse you from all sin. And it's sufficient to do so. So let's get into the meat of the text here. And we're going to talk about the threefold provision that God has made for a sinning Christian. And these three reasons are why Christmas is so joyful. Number one, Christmas is joyful because Jesus is our advocate. Christmas is joyful because Jesus is our advocate. Look again at verse one. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. If anyone does sin, which we all do, we have an advocate with the Father. Now, what's an advocate? Jesus is our advocate in the sense that he speaks up on our behalf in the presence of his Father in relationship to our sin. That's what an advocate does. Speaking up on your behalf in the presence of the Father in relationship to your sin. You know, oftentimes when you're advancing or you want a job promotion or you want to get ahead It depends on who you know, right? Networking is so vital in our day and age of jobs, and you'll sometimes hear people say, you know, feel free to drop my name. Feel free to use my name if it would help open the door for you with that person. We all understand that some names open doors because of the reputation that's associated with that name. And that would otherwise be closed, those doors would otherwise be closed without that name. And you know what Jesus, our advocate, does before the Father? He says, go ahead and use my name. It'll help. Christ doesn't just open the door. He takes our hand in his, he ushers us to the Father's throne, and he stands beside us and pleads our cause. Do you want to know, you ever ask yourself, What does Jesus live for? What's he live for? He's living now. He's raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand of God. What does he live for? Hebrews 7 tells us what he lives for. You want to know what he lives for? Hebrews 7.25 says he lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God through him. Jesus is living to be your advocate before the Father. And he does this willingly. He's not like the fatigued defense attorney that gets another call. Oh, no. They blew it again. I got to go to court again for this one. He's committed the same crime four times. As if the Son of God were weary in his pleading for us. No. The picture is not of a Jesus who is, love, who is a loving and kind and gracious and forgiving defense attorney, standing before this gigantic ogre in the sky who can't wait to cast sinners into hell, who is not a shred of love in his heart whatsoever for us. And Jesus is just coaxing him and twisting his arm to get this strict and judgmental judge to show some mercy to us and throw us some crumbs. If that's your image of the advocacy of Christ, you got some work to do in the Scriptures to come to a better understanding of who God is. And I'm here to help you with that this morning. John's here to help you with that this morning. Because notice what John says. Who is Jesus advocating before us with? Or with whom is Jesus advocating for us? With the Father. With the Father. So it's not like Jesus' love saying to justice, God, show them mercy. No, when Jesus the Advocate stands before the Father, it's justice standing before love. That will change your view. It's not love, Jesus, standing before justice, God. It's justice, Jesus, standing before love, God. It's not, though, he is saying, please, God, show them mercy. I know you are just. I know they deserve hell, but show them mercy. No, it's saying, Father, you may justly show them mercy now because of what you have sent me to do. It's not an advocacy of love against justice. It's an advocacy of justice to love so that God may love and show grace justly to those who trust in Christ. That is the whole point of 1 John 1 9. He is now faithful and just to forgive. See, the problem for God's forgiveness is not his love for us, the problem is his justice. So the cross is all about God finding a way for his love to be eternally resting upon us, but not at the expense of his justice and holiness. He has to uphold it. So Christ stands before the Father and says, Father, remember, you are absolutely justified to forgive them. I know it's in your heart you've always wanted to. That's where you you sent me for that reason. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. He did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him. That's the heart of God for his people. And so when Christ stands before them, but before the Father on our behalf, he is advocating as the just one to the loving one, saying, Father, you know that there is infinite merit in my work for all of the transgressions of my people. You've designed the atonement to be that. And so therefore you may justly and freely forgive them and the Father's heart is renewed and leaps again, recognizing that he can eternally love us as a result of what his son has lovingly and graciously done on our behalf. So how is Jesus qualified to advocate for us then? Well, our next two points give us insight into that. Two more reasons to be joyful. This is the reason that Jesus can advocate on behalf of the Father to us, or on behalf of us to to the Father. Number two, here's the second reason Christmas is joyful. Christmas is joyful because Jesus is our righteousness. Christmas is joyful because Jesus is our righteousness. Notice again what John says. Verse 1, middle of verse 1. But if anyone does not, does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Why is John throwing that in there? Why didn't he just say, if anyone sins, we got an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. That's enough. But no, he describes Jesus as the righteous one. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And it's because John emphasizes Jesus' righteousness and purity in opposition to our unrighteousness and impurity. See, we stand before God and have an advocate who advocates for the unrighteous as the righteous. You can see John's emphasis on Jesus' righteousness in a number of passages here in 1 John. I want to point a few of them out to you. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6 says, whoever says he abides in him, that is in Jesus, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. What was the way in which Jesus walked? The righteous life. Verse 29 of chapter 2. If you know that he is righteous, that is Jesus, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And we see it again in chapter 3, verses 3, 5, and 7. I'm not going to read those to you. But why is all that so important? Why is it so important that Jesus is righteous? It's important because the New Testament makes it clear that God in salvation shows grace, but he shows grace in such a way that all the concerns of his justice are fulfilled to the nth degree. They are filled and fulfilled to the nth degree by the active life of Jesus lived in perfect obedience to God. Jesus came and was born of a woman, according to Galatians 4, Mary, under law. That is under the obligations that we were required to fulfill in the beginning if we were going to inherit eternal life. But as you know, Adam failed. So the second Adam comes and lives a perfect life of obedience so that that perfect life might be imputed, given, reckoned, counted to us by faith in Christ alone. So he positively obeys all of God's law, and negatively he receives in his own body on the cross the penalty of our sin so that he can stand as the righteous one before the Father in our place that we might be forgiven. And God might be just. Jesus is righteous. And so John says, when you're weighed down by your sins, remember two things. You have an advocate with the Father, and this advocate is qualified because he's righteous. And it's through a righteous Savior that we're cleansed from our unrighteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ died for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's why John is emphasizing the righteousness of Jesus. Because in Jesus' death on the cross, the one who has acted righteously now advocates for us before the Father, speaks up on our behalf because we are those who are unrighteous and we need a righteous Savior. So when Jesus advocates for us, he says, Father, look not to their righteousness, look to mine. Because it's in my righteousness that their righteousness is given because they are in union me. So that's the second reason that Christmas is joyful. Christmas is joyful, number one, because we have an advocate. Jesus is our advocate. Christmas is joyful, number two, because Jesus is our righteousness. And number three, Christmas is joyful because Jesus is our propitiation. Notice chapter two, verse two, he is That is Jesus. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So here's a word that we use all the time. Propitiation. Did you use that in your conversation this week? It's an uncommon word. It's a biblically important word. And in case you don't know what that word means, it's okay. I want to give you the meaning of it. It's a very, very important word. To propitiate something or someone is to satisfy the wrath of God against sin. That's what propitiation is. It means to turn away, to satisfy divine justice, divine wrath against human sin. It means to offer a sufficient sacrifice that appeases God's just judgment and righteous anger against us, And against our sin. That's what propitiation means. And that's what Jesus did. And that's why Christmas is joyful. He is the one who in his death has turned away the condemnation of God against all those who trust in him. He's borne the wrath of God, holy and solely and only. And therefore, Christ's person and work are the ground of our fight against sin and the sorts from which all of our holiness flows and the basis on which all of our forgiveness rests. And thus the reason why those who trust in Christ are not frozen and paralyzed by their sin and not hopeless in their fight against sin is because Jesus has died for it. Now, this word, propitiation, is used one more time in this letter. And I want you to look at it with me. Go to chapter 4 of 1 John. 1 John chapter 4, and look at verses 9 and 10. These are amazing verses. Some of the most precious in the whole letter. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Notice. And before I read these verses, let me just say this. This is important because propitiation among even a lot of professing Christians, gets a bad rap. You know why it gets a bad rap? Not because it's in the Bible, but because people misunderstand it. They think, like I said previously with Jesus Christ being our advocate, that somehow you've got this angry God that doesn't love us and that just wants to send us to hell, and then Jesus steps in and says, Whoa, wait, I love him, God. I love him. And then they picture it's like divine child abuse. That's what some people have called propitiation. It's, well, the son takes all the licks. He goes and gets spanked and gets abused by the father so that God can forgive us. That is not the picture of the Bible. And it's not the picture of propitiation. This is the picture of propitiation. And make sure your, your thoughts are anchored in what the text says and not in what our culture thinks. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest. You want to know that God loves people? Here's how it's shown. That God sent his only son into the world. That's Christmas. So that we might live through him. God wants us with him. Verse 10. And this is love. This is love. This is the definition of love. Not that we have loved God but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. It is the expression of God's love for us that Christ died under the wrath of God for us. God the Father wanted it that way. God the Son wanted it that way. God the Spirit wanted it that way. Because in a very true sense, He'd rather die than be without us. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So if John writes a propitiation here and in chapter two, verse two, and of forgiveness of sin in chapter one, then the way in which he forgives us is because the blood of Jesus has cleansed us from all of our sin. It has paid our sin debt to God. See, here's, here's, the, here's the Bible's logic. The soul that sins shall die. That, if we sin against God, we merit not only physical death, but spiritual death. And all of us are born in union with an unrighteous man. Adam, that's why you die. That's why I'm going to die. I'm born in union with an unrighteous man. The things that Adam did in the garden affected everybody. Therefore, we inherit his position, which is corrupt, and we inherit his punishment, which is death, physical and spiritual death. But that's why I said the second Adam comes, lives in obedience, so that when we get in union with him, we're made alive. See, we, we live in connection to two Adams. Every human being is living in connection with two Adams. Either you're born naturally and you just live in the regular Adam and you die and suffer the punishment for your sin, or the second Adam, you get in union with him and his righteousness becomes yours and his death becomes yours such that the old Adam's unrighteousness and the old Adam's death no longer are yours because you're in union with the new Adam and therefore your death becomes a passage into life. So the fact that Christ is righteous and that he has lived righteously in our place and that he has borne the penalty for our sins is vitally important. And so Jesus, as the advocate, stands before God and reminds him that his justice has been fulfilled for all who trust in him through his death, and therefore God can show grace and show mercy and show loving, kindness, justly because of what his son has done for us. It's the, this is the picture. Christ is our attorney. attorney. And his portfolio contains his righteous life and his propitiating death. And he stands before his father in heaven. And every time we sin, he doesn't make a new propitiation. He doesn't come down here and live again, another righteous life. No, he doesn't live again, and he doesn't die again and again. Instead, he opens his portfolio, and he lays the exhibits of Good Friday on the bench before the judge. Photographs of the crown of thorns, the lashing, the mocking, the soldiers, the agonies of the cross. And then the last page of that portfolio contains three words. It is finished. And justice smiles and asks, No more. Here's what, again, I want to quote from Paul Tripp, and we're gonna wrap up our sermon and sing as an as an appropriate response to this. I want to read one more quote from Paul. And just let this land on you as a, an expression of God's kindness and love. Paul writes, if God was willing to send his son to restore our relationship of love with him, you can be sure that he will not let anything separate us from his love. You see, the Christmas story is the world's best love story. It's about a God of love sending the son of his love to live a life of love and die a death of love so that all who believe in him would be welcomed into the arms of his love forever and ever. Embedded in the Christmas story is a promise of unbroken love for the children of God. You can do the dumbest thing, and God will still love you. You can have a day when you ignore his existence, and God will still love you. You can fail to do what he's called you to do, and he will still love you. I'm not arguing that sin is okay or that you should take, not take it seriously. I'm arguing that the security of our relationship with God has never depended on the faithfulness of our obedience. If God withdrew his love every time we failed, there would be no hope for any of us. The unbreakable faithfulness of God's love for us is such a huge comfort precisely because we are unfaithful. Let me conclude where John concludes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. He says, he's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of of the whole world. When John says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, but not for our sins only, but for those of the whole world, I think he means to say at least two things. And with these two things, I want to conclude. And this is very important news for us, and I pray that all of you will hear and respond to this now. So first, he means to say that Jesus is the one Savior for the whole world. Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male, female. It's not just for a little group of Christians in Asia Minor in the first century to whom he is writing. No, it's for everyone in the world on December 24th, 2017. Everyone who trusts in him, who embraces the gospel. This good news of great joy shall be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's what he means when he says it's not for us only. It's for the whole world. It's for your coworkers. It's for your family. It's for your friends. It's for North Korea. It's for all people everywhere. For those who sit across from you, who live beside you, who are in your family. This is for the whole world. So Christian, share it. Share it. Tell people the good news. Secondly, Jesus John means that Jesus is not just the one savior for the whole world, he's the one savior for the whole world. There is no plan B. There is no other option. He's not just one good way among many. He's not one of the better ways among many. He's not even the best way among many. He's the only way. Only way we get to fellowship with God is through the righteous, propitiating, advocate, Jesus Christ. So to put it in the language of John, John is the only, Jesus is the only God-provided solution for our problem. We can come up with lots of our own solutions that won't work. But if we embrace God's provision, we will be reinstated into God's fellowship. And thus, everyone must come to him, and only through him can we have our sins forgiven. So, in other words, John is saying that any and all and only those who trust in Christ are saved. So, that confronts us all with a question here this morning, doesn't it? Have you embraced him? I didn't... Didn't it, Thank you for coming to church this morning. But if coming to church doesn't get you to Jesus, to you personally interacting with him, walking with him, confessing your sins to him, relating to him, walking in the light with him, does no good. But heap up further condemnation. So if you have not embraced Jesus, can I invite you to embrace him this morning? What a glorious Christmas it would be if you said you came in here feeling, you know what, I'm just messed up, I got issues, I don't know what they are, I know that, uh, I know that there's good news out there somewhere, at least I've heard things about Jesus, and this, these three things about Jesus being an advocate and Jesus being righteous and Jesus being the propitiation for my sins sounds like the greatest Christmas gift I could ever receive. And if that's you, you can have him this morning. He's free for the taking. And so I encourage you, pray to Jesus. Say, Jesus, just pray along these lines. You can pray a prayer. It's not the prayer that saves you. You have to entrust yourself to this Savior and embrace him by faith and claim him as your own. But if you will say, Father, I have no advocate with you. I advocate for myself right now. And I'm going to stand before God one day. He's going to say, why should I let you in? And I've got nobody to plead my case. All I've got is, I've kind of been good. Will you ignore the bad stuff? No, he can't. He loves you, but he can't. And so you need to have Jesus at your side on the last day. And You can have him at your side on the last day. He will advocate for you now and for the rest of your life as the righteous one who lived in your place, as the propitiating one who died for your sins and rose again, So trust him today. And if you have embraced Jesus Christ and you've trusted him for forgiveness and you're walking in the light, fighting your sin, John is reminding you of this this morning. Don't look anywhere else. Don't look anywhere else. Jesus Christ is all you need. Keep looking to him. The fight against sin, brothers and sisters, is lifelong. It will lay us all in the grave, but Christ will raise us all from the grave. So keep looking to the one who is your righteous advocate and who has paid the penalty for your sins and has satisfied the just judgment and wrath of God in your place. Keep looking to him and keep holding to him. He will never, ever let you go. Merry Christmas indeed. Let's pray. Worship team, please come. Father, thank you for giving us your son, for sending him to live in our place and to die in our place. Lord Jesus, thank you for advocating for us before the father as the righteous one. Thank you for living to make intercession for us. We need you so much as our savior. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for sending us another helper. Holy Spirit, thank you for being another advocate. You came as the one who indwells us and has sealed us and is another helper, another counselor, another advocate who will be with us till the end. So, Father, thank you for loving us and thank you for the opportunity to respond now in light of these, this good news of great joy that we have considered this morning. Help us to sing with our hearts and, with, and, and to, to, to recommit our lives into your safekeeping resting only and solely in Christ. And for all those who are outside of Christ this morning, would you draw them to him irresistibly and powerfully for his glory and their good, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.